ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Time for our regular chat we look forward to with Dr. Glenda Cooper, Deputy Head of Journalism Department, University of London on the line. Good morning to you, our time. Good morning, Tim. Yes, it's all happening in the UK. The post office scandal, miscarriage of justice, the biggest one in what, how long? Long time. Um, I would say really in recent years, um, it is a huge scandal here in the UK at the moment. Um, Just to explain it simply, um, post office branch managers across the UK um, from about 1999 onwards were wrongly accused of theft and false accounting. Mm. Uh, More than 700 of them got prosecuted. But actually, um, the issue wasn't with them. The issue was with some faulty software that um, the post office had introduced as a kind of centralised computer um, accounting system. Um, This is called Horizon. But it wrongly made it look like money was missing. And so uh, when those who were accused, these um, postmasters were accused, um, they were, and they said there must be a problem with the software, they were either sacked, or they were forced to replay, repay these losses Mm. that had um, seemed to be on the system. And in in some cases, they were even sent to jail, um, including actually one woman who was pregnant. So, you know, this like sort of, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, has been a devastating toll on people. You know, some some of them went bankrupt, you know, some of them lost their homes, you know, they, their marriages broke down, you know, huge yeah. you know problems with mental health. Um, and as I say, but what's really interesting about this is um, it has been going on sort of for 20 years and there's been a campaign uh, for 20 years by a group of these post office workers um, led by a guy called Alan Bates who fought to clear their names. Mm. Um, So you might ask, you know, why is this such a a big story in the UK at the moment? And um, actually, this is a really interesting thing. It's because um, on New Year's Day, um, a drama, um, a TV drama on the uh, sort of on ITV, Mm. um, that was a kind of semi-fictionalised version of this um, was broadcast. And this it's an amazing thing about how TV drama can sometimes do this. Journalists had written about this, but it never kind of cut through to public consciousness. Okay. Um, 9.2 million people watched it in the UK and it's had you know, a staggering effect. Yeah. Um, sort of more than a million people have signed a petition over this. Um, the British government have had to, you know, basically like announce a new law saying that they will um, pass a law that can exonerate and compensate the victims. And the former CEO, um, a woman called Paula Venels, um, has had to actually hand back her CBE, such as the protest around how these postmasters have been treated. Well, uh, if it was the United States, there'd be court cases all over the place. Is that pending? Well, there's there's various things. There's a there's actually a public inquiry going okay. on at the moment, which the post office haven't covered themselves um, with glory over either, because it's been a sort of a, a lot of delays, a lot of um, emails, and other documents not being produced. And in fact, you know, only the, only this week it came out in the inquiry that the BBC had sa- said that when they tried to do a documentary series about this back in 2015, mm. the post office threatened it um, because they'd interviewed a whistleblower from um, Fujitsu, this the um, company that made the software. Right. So really bad. Um, it is. In terms oh. of kind of civil cases, yeah. well, at the moment, it's just like sort of 
the police are looking into whether they will consider investigating whether post office officials will face criminal charges. Um, but you know, you know, watch this space. This you know has story. really shocked the nation. Yeah, what a terrible, terrible story. Uh, well, uh, court cases, but there'd have to be compensation, surely. Well, this is, I mean, some workers have got compensation so far following um, the 20-year campaign, but these are very small amounts. Mm. Um, And as I say, the government, Rishi Sunak, has now had to sort of step in and say um, that they're going to pass this new law, which will look at sort of some better compensation. Mm. But for many, and we've heard, you know, uh, sort of in various media outlets this week, some terribly heartrending stories, you know, for some people, they've already died. For oh. some people, they have lost everything. So, mm. what you know, whatever money they get, it's not going to really compensate for those lost lit years of their lives. Um, but it it's amazing, I think, how this was allowed to go on for so long. But also, you know, the power of, you know. TV drama to actually bring something yes, to um, yeah. national attention like this. Yeah, absolutely. Goodness me, that's a terrible story. Now, we're seeing it here, of course, and Rishi Sunak has joined Joe Biden in ordering the airstrikes on Yemen. How's that gone down in the UK? Well, um, as you say, this has happened this week, the UK mm. joining with the US on these targeted strikes on what they're saying is military uh, facilities after um, the Houthis this armed group attacking ships in the Red Sea. And um, Rishi Sunak has said that this is necessary, this this is proportionate and targeted, um, and that it is, you know, self-defense. Interesting to see um, Mm. what happens here. Um, He's he's coming to the House of Commons on Monday uh, to make a statement and answer questions about it. Because while he and sort of, I think the US as well, both the UK and the US governments are very clear that they want to keep this um, separate from what else is going on in the mm. Middle East. Obviously, you know, the Houthis have said, you know, very much they support uh, Hamas. And so they're targeting ships leading to Israel. Um, mm. And so the idea of being then drawn into sort of the Israel-Gaza conflict is one that will be very much mm. um, on the UK government's mind. Um, it should be said that the the strikes being backed by Keir Starmer, the the leader of the opposition. Okay. Um, and we'll see what Sunak says on Monday. But you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people expected on another uh, march protest yeah, in uh, London um, over the war in Gaza. And tomorrow, there's also going to be um, a rally in Trafalgar Square in support of Israel. So mm. this is still you know a very um, hot topic here in the UK. Yes, it most certainly is. Uh, in fact, uh, all over Europe, as you know, not there's been some demonstrations here, not so much as you're experiencing. And by the way, I did see Joe Biden when he was asked the question uh, about war with Iran. He said, no, Iran doesn't want a war with us. Well, I think, uh, Glenda, we all hope so. I hope not, rather. Sure. Yeah. Well, absolutely. The UK Defence Secretary Grant Shapps um, was on the BBC um, in the last few hours, said, Issuing a warning to Tehran to say, mm. um, you know, don't don't get involved, don't like sort of um, stop Houthi, who you know, who he says are, are backed by Iran because mm. they don't want a bigger conflagration in the in the region. Yeah, oh, the world's a dangerous place. Now, I was saying to my listeners earlier, yeah, just an hour or so ago, is there a more scrutinised group of people on the face of the earth than the royal family? I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> A new bio, yet another biography about Charles the Third. 
I was going to say, maybe not, <laughs> certainly by us. I think um, I'm talking yeah. about the Royals every week. Goodness but uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, the yeah, they're still, you know, very big business of, you know, our royal family, one of our most dysfunctional families in the UK. Um, and yes, there's a new biography by a, a very senior royal correspondent called Robert Hardman um, yeah. about Char- um, about King Charles. But what has hit the headlines so far is these new details around um, the final hours and days of the late Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. Um, because at, at the time, uh, I mean, thinking back to 2022, um, it was a very strange day in the UK. Um, our newsreaders had black ties on from fairly early in the day. So everyone knew something was afoot. But yeah, yeah. the details of what actually happened. So uh, Robert Hardman has spoken to some of the most senior uh, people in um, the royal household um, and particularly um, Sir Edward Young, who was um, the Queen's private secretary. Mm. Who's given these details about uh, what happened? That you know um, that she she slipped away in her sleep, but in very much um, in the way that you would think, um, you know, finished all her work, you know, left nothing undone. So mm. the uh, the Queen has these um, any sort of senior member of the royal family, the King or the Queen or um, whatever, has what we call the red boxes, and that's the the special yes. boxes yeah. that your work is put in, and so. When um, when the Queen passed away, um, she had finished her last um, one of these um, boxes Goodness. of correspondence. Inside, apparently, were two sealed notes, one for her private secretary and one uh, for her son, uh, Charles III. Mm. Um, nothing um, has been revealed about then. And also the final list of who is going to be appointed to... Um, I think me. that we they call the order of merit, which is if you're very distinguished in the arts or sciences or public um, spaces. But I suppose what is interesting about some of the details that have come out is, you know, kind of how, you know, even if you're expecting um, a, you know, a sad event like this to happen, yeah. you know, the, sort of the banalities almost come in. So we find out that actually the way that Charles found out that his mother had died, he'd actually gone out um, to pick some mushrooms. And um, <laughs> so he actually received the news of his mother's death. Right. Um, when he was driving back in the car, uh, right. that was the first time he heard himself addressed as your majesty. Mm. And then he obviously wanted to pass on the message about what had happened to his relatives. But when he rang Buckingham Palace switchboard, you know, he would usually announce himself with his title and he didn't want to do that um, because obviously that would give the game away. So there's apparently this like rather strange moment where he had to say it's, me, because obviously he couldn't say he he wasn't Prince oh, of Wales anymore, uh, of co- of <laughs> but he oh, didn't yes, want to say he was the course. king, and you know let <laughs> yes. you know those on the switchboard know before um, his son or his brothers. Mm. So it's um it's quite, it's an intriguing um, insight into you know what happened on that day and how you know all those kind of small details that we didn't know about. And yeah. I'm sure there'll be more revelations in the yeah. days to come uh, from the book itself. Oh, that's just fascinating. I think what's always come shining through to me about Charles, he absolutely adored his mother, Charles. And whether you're a royalist or a Republican, what an extraordinary woman taking care of business and, you know, about to pass away. Elizabeth, amazing human being, really, wasn't she? Well, exactly. And that kind of sense of duty. Mm. I mean, anyone who's watched The Crown, you know, there's been and, you know, there was speculation over the years, would the Queen abdicate? 
And I think when you see that kind of attention to detail, that fact that, you know, in her mid 90s, you know, on her deathbed, she was still fulfilling her duties. You know, the idea that she would have ever abdicated, you know, is clearly not the case. Mm. But, you know, and I think that was probably maybe some of her you know, lack of um, understanding, you know, why some of the more junior royals, you know, didn't have that same sense of duty that she, was absolutely ingrained in her. Mm. She was, uh, as I'm going to say it again, just extraordinary. But then again, so was Elizabeth I. I mean, uh, two extraordinary women. You've had to uh, be monarchs of your country. Now, um, naming and shaming people working from home, that's not very British, Glenda. <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know whether there's been this um, debate with you, but has, since yes. COVID happened, yeah. you know, uh, when we all had to work at home during the pandemic, um, various firms, you know, in the city, law firms, you know, industry have had difficulty persuading some of their employees back into the office. You know, a lot of people quite like working at home or want that yeah. more flexible um, approach to work. And particularly places in London, it's been really interesting about how things like sandwich shops have suffered because, you know, there's less footfall and things like that. So how do you manage this if you want your employees back in the office and knowing what um, you're going to do? Well, this top city law firm called Slaughter and May has come up <laughs> with, I'm not sure it's going to be a very popular mm. um, idea. So they, they've they told their lawyers that um, when they enter um, their London headquarters, like so many others, you swipe in and out with a card. And yeah, so okay. what they're going to yeah. do, um, <laughs> you could obviously, you know, we all know that managers can access that information to see what time you came in in the morning, you yeah. know, what time you took your lunch break, what time you left the, <laughs> the office. And so what they're saying is that if they don't come in three days a week, then they're going to, managers are going to share this information with, oh. you know, the group heads, with um, HR, uh, to try and kind of name and shame them back into the office. So, you know, if they're not actually you know, mm. physically in court or physically managing, uh, you know, with a client, then they have to be, you know, in the office. And as you say, this isn't really very British. I mean, Slaughter and May, no. you know, are, 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 are a very conservative with a small c law firm. I mean, there's a, there's a famous story that they were very disapproving of um, their lawyers wearing brown shoes rather than uh, black oh. um, in the office because like brown shoes are very much for the country. I mean, <laughs> as always, we get back to class. <laughs> And uh, the UK, as always, um, try to do it. So um, this is quite um, interesting that they're going to do so, um, and I think a lot of other firms will be watching to see uh, what happens. But we know that lawyers are pretty independent-minded people. Um, I, I'm not sure that they're going to take this uh, lying down, or indeed sitting <laughs> <laughs> sitting down from their um, home sofas, yes. so to speak. Um, and we'll just have to see what happens about this. But if it does work, then I think you could see other four, uh, firms following suit on this. Yes, sitting at the desk still in your pyjamas, of course, at home. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's, well in, it's interesting. Of course, none of us have done that. No, never. Oh, <laughs> never. Interesting, you know, uh, during COVID, a lot of people did uh, work from home and found it was pretty good and a sort of mixing and matching now. So a couple of days at home... Uh, two or three in the office and in our business the radio business um, a lot of uh, broadcasters because they didn't want to come in or were worried about COVID had machinery at home so they could broadcast from home and I think that's uh, still happening to a certain extent so it might take a while uh, for all of that COVID related stuff to go away. 
I, I think you're right. And a lot of for some people, they had a really difficult time working from home. Yeah. I think it's easy to forget if you didn't have a place where there's quiet to work or you know your where you lived was not very um, suitable then it was a really difficult time mm, mm. Um, but for others you know they've they found the commute being taken away you know as you say being able to work from home in your pajamas or whatever you know much more flexible and so that you know there's been a real kind of culture war almost in the uk about whether people should be made to go back to the office or not and as they slaughter and may are the most recent ones to enter the field here with their kind of solution so the black shoes do they have to wear a three-piece suit as well and a bowler hat and an umbrella. Uh, I, I think the bowler hat may have gone by <laughs> even in the in the twenty twenties, yeah. but uh, yes, they're, they're not your radical law firm. It's fair to say. So it would seem. Yes. Now, not being disrespectful to the designer involved here, but this woman of the moment isn't she ever a Taylor Swift wearing a dress worth well in your money? That's about well, just a bit less than a hundred bucks in our money. She can afford more than that. Tell me this story. Well, this is a really lovely story, actually, um, about Taylor Swift and an olive green dress. Mm. And as you say, it's about um, it was fifty eight pounds in, you know, England in UK money. And she she was seen stepping out, going to a pizza with two of her mates, Blake Lively and Zoe Kravitz, as Mm. one does in Brooklyn the other day, um, wearing this very nice um, olive green mini dress. You know, so what? You know, Taylor Swift well, wears yeah. lots of um, different designer dresses. Turns out, how, however, um, that actually this came from a, a tiny Scottish fashion house, um, one called Little Lies, um, based up in Perth. Um, the designer didn't even know that uh, Taylor Swift had bought it. It had been bought from them. They worked out the order, but it didn't have Taylor Swift's name on it. So they think she must have used an alias or one of her team oh, must have bought it. Yeah. Uh, she woke, So Jade Robertson, the um, woman who designed it, um, basically woke up um, at 6am, you know, to a storm of WhatsApps uh, from people <laughs> saying, have you seen this picture? It's your dress. And so, you know, she's obviously, you know, over the moon. But actually, what's nice about it is she's not trying to cash in on this in any way. Oh, good she's on saying her. Yeah. the price is going to remain the same. You know, she's, I think she's produced a few hundred of these dresses. She said she's not going to do it uh, anymore. You know, of course, anyone who's listening, um, sad to say that they have obviously sold All out gone. Yeah. Uh, by now. Um, but she was like she's lovely she's given interviews saying how gobsmacked she is but she has had to admit and you may have guessed this from the Mm. name of her fashion house little lies Mm -hmm. um, that actually she's not a complete swifty she's more of a fleetwood mac um, fan which is why she called her fashion house this um but obviously you know she's very happy um that she's done this and you know i think taylor swift is due uh around june time to be touring at Scotland, so who yes. knows? Maybe uh, she'll get to buy another dress or two from the place. Oh, there's absolutely it's frenetic, <laughs> frenetic here getting Taylor Swift uh, tickets to go and see her in concert. She's coming here too. Uh, little lies. Well, there you go, yeah. listeners. Have a look and see if you can uh, scam one of these dresses from <laughs> from the Little Lies website. Uh, can well, I just say. can I just add, Glenda, with no agenda whatsoever, that you don't have to pay a fortune to look nice. 
no, absolutely. And mm. I think this is, um, you know, this is a case in point. You know, and absolutely kudos to Taylor Swift for not feeling that she has to wear things that are sort of four or five figure um, pri- <laughs> price range um, just to do that. And, you know, very grateful because obviously I'm slightly more in the little lies yes. um, price range than Taylor Swift's usual yeah. one. Yes. Well, bless her heart for doing that, <laughs> Taylor Swift. Uh, it's always lovely to talk to you, Glenda. Thanks very much for your time. Lovely to talk to you too. Dr. Glenda Cooper. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.